It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Tom Hanks has it. The NBA season is over. Disneyland is shut. It's not a normal week for this podcast or for America. With 234 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief. I'm standing in for John Prito while he recovers from a sore throat. This is a podcast about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. We take one theme each week and explore it in depth. This week, COVID-19 is here. Will America be able to limit its spread? And how much damage will it do to Donald Trump? This week, we're recording the podcast entirely from home. I'm in my daughter's room, and we have remote podcasting with me, Checks and Balance regular John Fasman, The Economist's Washington correspondent. Hi, Charlotte. I am perched on a meditation bench at the foot of my bed with my microphone cosseted in blankets in front of me. That sounds quite lovely. (laughs) It's nice for the microphone. (laughs) How has your week been? You're usually traveling all over the place. What did your week look like this week? Well, I did some travel this week, and it was travel that got sort of progressively more surreal as the week went on. I was down in Washington this week facing ever lighter rush hour traffic each day. Last night, I took the train from D.C. up to New York, and both Union Station and Penn Station were like ghost towns. So it really did feel like the end of an apocalypse movie. (laughs) And I'm also delighted this week to welcome to the podcast Adam Roberts, The Economist's Midwest correspondent. Adam, how are things in Chicago? Hey, Charlotte. Things are probably less apocalyptic in Chicago right now. The big news is that the mayor has canceled the St. Patrick's Day parade. So the tradition of Dying the River Bright Green is going to be cancelled this year. Uh, A gathering of 150,000 people will not be happening. But the the broader sort of mood here, I was travelling in in central Illinois this week, and it's a bit more complacent here. I don't think people have realised the apocalypse is coming quite yet. I have to clarify, though, that for Chicago to cancel the St. Patrick's Day river dying to someone outside Chicago may not seem a particularly big deal, but you have never seen adults embrace a childish tradition with such glee as you do adult Chicagoans. So that is sort of a big cultural shift. You're absolutely right, Charlotte. They boast about nothing being able to cancel this parade. However bad the weather, come ice, snow, they always have it. So they were defiant. They were not going to cancel this until yesterday. So it's a big deal for Chicago. I think New York and Boston have also canceled theirs, right? And Dublin. Oh, wow. And Dublin. Yeah. Well, later in the show, we'll talk a bit about history, about there are certain American cities in the past that didn't cancel such mass gatherings, and the harm from it was really obvious in the weeks to follow. So I'm glad that some of these bigger events are being called off. But I want to start this week by talking about China. China is a month or so ahead of where we are in America in dealing with COVID-19. And plenty of Americans had dismissed the disease as something that might affect those overseas, but not within the United States. 
For the first time this week, countries outside China started adding confirmed cases at a faster rate than China ever did. With the disease spreading through the U.S., the rest of the world is watching to see which superpower copes with the virus most effectively. David Rennie is the Economist's bureau chief in Beijing. Before he got sick, John Prito spoke with David about China's response. China is at a different stage. Remember, we're a month or two ahead of the United States. So now they've really stopped the big rise of infections domestically. And their big fear, certainly here in Beijing, where I am, is imported cases coming in from abroad. So at the international airport, for example, uh, I was there to pick up a teenager a few days ago, and three flights came through in about four hours. And the plane that my son was on, it took three hours to get off the plane and through the airport because they were taking passengers off two by two and questioning them about their travel history, their health history. And, you know, this was teams in hazmat suits coming onto the plane, grabbing two passengers and taking them off and interrogating them. That was unbelievably slow and unbelievably intrusive. And you have to wonder whether, uh, you know, people at JFK or Dulles Airport in DC would stand for that. So that gives us a flavour of what airport security is like at the moment. But how about once you get through the airport and into the major Chinese cities? How, how has life changed there? It's incredibly intrusive. I mean, this is not a place that's in love with privacy anyway, and it's not a litigious place like the United States. But for example, in some big cities like Shanghai or Hangzhou, Uh, If you want to get on public transport or you want to get into your place of work or even some shopping centres, you need to download an app on your smartphone. You have to tell that app your health history and your travel history, and then it gives you a code, green, yellow or red. And if you can't show the security guards a green code, you're not getting to work, you're not going in that shopping mall and you're not getting on that train. And I do wonder whether Americans would tolerate that degree of kind of uh, very assertive control through a smartphone app. David, China has been praised by the World Health Organization for its response to coronavirus. Do you think we have the complete picture there? I think it's very partial. I mean, I think the the analogy that comes to mind with me is if you refuse to report a small fire and it then takes over an entire forest, it's hard to get 100% praise for the incredible firefighting efforts you put into that kind of forest-sized blaze if at the very beginning you absolutely refused to warn people that there was a small fire. And that's the kind of million-dollar question. China wasted over a month covering up the beginning of this virus. If it could have been contained at that point, and it wasn't because officials didn't want the hassle and the embarrassment of admitting this disease existed, that does make China kind of responsible for a lot of what is happening now. That said, the WHO is right, I think, that China has put extraordinary effort uh, in terms of cost, people's disruption to their lives, uh, and the incredible sacrifice of hundreds of millions of Chinese basically locking themselves indoors for more than a month uh, to beat this virus. And they have basically bent the curve down and, and stopped new infections. And David, Xi Jinping was in Wuhan this week. Has the Communist Party turned disaster into a victory? It's been a bumpy few days for communist propaganda in Wuhan, starting with a senior official down there who announced that the people of Wuhan needed gratitude lessons to thank the party for everything that had been done for them. That went down incredibly badly. So it was interesting that although Xi Jinping did the whole sort of commander of the people's war defeating the virus thing, he was very careful to thank the medics and to say they were the real heroes and to notice that the people of Wuhan have sacrificed and suffered a great deal and that the party needs to work hard for them and be tolerant and understanding of their sufferings. That was quite a kind of 
kinder, gentler communist leader than we sometimes see. And David, you know China very well, obviously, but you also know America very well. You're the Economist Bureau Chief in Washington, where we worked together for a long time. And your family, on a personal level, is, is split at the moment, you know, half of you in China and half of you in the US. How does the US look from China right now? It's really hard. I have one teenager here, one teenager still in America. And it's a hard call as to know which place looks more orderly and organised. I mean, you know, there is no comparison between a communist dictatorship, which was, you know, sending the police to threaten uh, doctors and cover the thing up. And then, you know, one of those doctors who was a whistleblower then died. You know, so let's not try and draw a moral equivalence between the two political systems. But it is uncomfortable and depressing sitting here in China to see the Trump White House, at least, making some of the same mistakes in terms of politicising the response and wasting very valuable weeks as the infections take off. And that is really depressing. I can also tell you it's depressing here as a big fan of America to see the Chinese state media having an absolute field day just reporting what's happening in the States and quoting American coverage of President Trump and all the criticisms uh, that a free press in America generates are then lovingly reported back here. And the lesson from China to their own people is, you see, we always told you that Western democracy is a terrible system. How much better to have a one-party state looking after you? The political systems, as you say, are so different that it's hard to look at one and try and make comparisons. But are there things, nevertheless, that the US can learn from how China's responded to coronavirus? The thing that I don't think Westerners picked up quickly enough was just how quickly everything is going to get sort of different and abnormal and just how quickly you have to realise that normal life is going to be on hold for a while and you don't get to whine about that because speed is of the essence and taking a few weeks of extreme disruption and not being able to go out very much at all and not going to the cinema, not going to sports games, not going to restaurants is the price for trying to bend that infection curve and stop new infections. And I think that kind of level of kind of mass mobilization, there is something for America to learn from that. And it's not just a communist thing. You know, if you look at what's happening in South Korea, which is obviously a democracy, the island of Taiwan, which is a multi-party democracy, has actually had a better virus experience than you're seeing in the States right now. So it's not a dictatorship thing. It's a sort of selflessness thing. David talks about extreme disruption in China. That's not something we've heard from the Trump administration. There are local measures that are being taken, companies in particular and colleges making the decision to send students home. Why is that, do you think? Why do we have this lag, John? I think part of the reason lies in the way that political power operates in America versus China. We are just a much more decentralized country. And the responsibility for responding to public health crises falls on local governments rather than the federal government. Now, that's not to say, obviously, that the federal government has no role in a crisis. It can release funding, and I think we are about to see that happen. It can set a tone from the top, which I guess we'll discuss later has been woeful. But you know, one reason we haven't seen the Trump administration talk about this is that the ultimate responsibility is local, and you can see how different the responses are depending on where you are. I mean, in New York, you have to be really, really sick to get a coronavirus test. In Colorado, they've just set up some drive-through coronavirus testing spots. As far as disruption itself, I think you've seen the disruption happen, right? I mean, the basketball season is over. One reason it doesn't quite look the same is that political power is different here than it is in China. 
On the other hand, it's a question of what you mean by disruption, right? So yes, some, some big events might be called off. But in this week's issue, there's an amazing graphic from The Economist data team that shows how foot traffic in New York is just as busy as it ever was, even as the outbreak gathers speed, uh, compared with other cities, Rome, Paris, and cities in Asia, where foot traffic is, is broadly down. And I can tell you, as someone who lives in downtown Manhattan, the streets are abuzz with people enjoying the weather that's a bit warmer. This has not sunk in remotely yet. Adam, do you think that this is a test for America about public trust? You have the contrast most obviously in China, but there's also South Korea, Italy. Governments there have been taking quite a different approach, both in their messaging and in their action than the United States. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this is a question both of communication and of trust. So John's completely right that America is much more decentralized. A lot of decisions will have to be taken locally. But even here in Illinois, it's a completely democratically run state. J.B. Pritzker, the governor, is very happy to talk about how badly Trump has been handling this crisis. They were boasting that they were doing tests before the CDC was telling them to do. But if you look at how many people have actually been tested in a state of 13 million people, they've so far tested 367 people. So this is not the local administration doing particularly well. Now, you could say that's partly because the communication from the top has been really bad as well. There hasn't been a clear message from the CDC to tell people, for example, how they should change their behaviour. That doesn't cost any resources to change behaviour. So to give you one more anecdote, I was talking to a a local politician here in Illinois who happens to also own uh, a centre for elderly people to the west of Chicago. And I was asking him, well, what measures has he taken to stop infections spreading to the elderly people in there? And he kind of laughed and said, nothing. You know, this is just like the flu. We're not going to do anything different. This is two days ago when it was very clear that the elderly are the most exposed to the dangers of this. That the one thing the CDC has said is don't go and visit people in assisted care homes if you don't have to. And yet here's a local politician who hasn't got the message. So I think the lack of trust is combined with a lack of communication from the top. Thanks, guys. We'll talk in more detail about the Trump administration's response to the virus a bit later. The Economist cover story this week is on the politics of pandemics. You can read that and all our COVID-19 coverage by heading to economist.com slash coronavirus. You'll need to subscribe if you haven't already. Economist.com slash pod 2020 is the place to go to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. Both these links are in the show notes for this podcast. Nobody will remember the earlier success of government agencies in combating infectious disease if they fail to contain COVID. But let's take a look back on how federal pandemic response efforts first began. In America, fighting pandemics has always been tied to war. The first federal health care program began after the Civil War, when smallpox was a scourge in the South. The next great war brought Spanish flu to America, when soldiers were demobilized in 1918. The flu killed about five times as many Americans as died in the war. After the Second World War, the federal government took on a bigger role in coordinating pandemic response. CDC has long been the national center of the control of infectious diseases. The Communicable Disease Center was set up to eradicate malaria, 
than common in southern states. They did it in five years. Its work has benefited mankind around the world. The CDC took on more responsibilities. The agency's to-do list reads like a chapter from the Old Testament. Polio, typhus, viral encephalitis, plague, Q fever, creeping, eruption, actually not as bad as some others on the list, rabies, STDs, tuberculosis, cancer, birth defects, chronic conditions, and more recently, obesity and opioids. The CDC was instrumental in eliminating smallpox and polio worldwide. It's one of only two places in the world that holds the smallpox virus. The CDC is just one of the federal health agencies that sprung up after World War II. Anthony Fauci heads the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And there were reports, Alice, that this widely respected expert, Dr. Fauci, will have every opportunity to tell us the truth. Well, that's a very dishonest, the, and, very dishonest C-SPAN viewers will recognize the doctor from hearings on Capitol Hill. You can speak. Why don't you speak to them? And a recent White House press conference. So... so let me let me clarify it. I have never been muzzled, ever, and I've been doing this since the administration of Ronald Reagan. Dr. Fauci is remarkable. He's run the agency since 1984. AIDS is caused by HTLV-3. He was one of the first to work on the AIDS virus. I believe now that we have the agent in hand, that the amount of effort and energy that's being put into it by biomedical sciences, that within a reasonable period of time, we'll have a lot of these answers. Congress has also sought his expertise on anthrax, SARS, Ebola, Zika, H1N1, and now COVID. We are truly in the middle of the evolution of, a, of an epidemic. We just he reckons he's testified more than anyone. We have to take this very, very seriously. Fauci has used his quiet authority to bypass political inertia before. We are here to celebrate the life of Freddie Mercury. It took celebrity campaigner Elizabeth Taylor to shift public opinion in the fight against AIDS. In just two short weeks, there will be as many new infections as there are people here tonight. Please don't let it happen to you. It was six years before President Reagan spoke publicly about the epidemic. The true men of action in our times are not the politicians and statesmen, but the scientists. Only medical science can ever truly defeat AIDS. Yet for all the expertise of Fauci, and others like him, the work of the health agencies depends on Americans trusting the federal government. And right now, it's not clear that they do. With a pandemic, all it takes is a few weak links, a few people to discount health advice, for the virus to spread so fast it can't be contained. COVID-19 is a test of how much Americans trust their political leaders. It's also a test of how much those political leaders trust health experts and empower them to put that expertise to good use when it's most needed. slogan, Drain the Swamp, ironically originates in the tactics that were used to prevent malaria in the, in the region. Democrats have complained about federal agencies that have been undermined since 2016 when Trump came to power. Is that the case? Is there legitimacy to that complaint? Well, I think there are a couple of answers to that. The first one is that funding for the CDC itself has actually gone up since 2016. But that is largely because Congress has ignored 
Trump's budget request to slash it. And just on Tuesday, Russell Vogt, the OMB chair, was before Congress defending his decision to slash CDC funding in the budget. I think the broader problem stems from Donald Trump's habit of inveighing against the deep state. I think he has sowed this real distrust of the federal government, and that's going to come back and bite him. I think you saw that in Trump's speech on Wednesday night, which really unsettled people and contained some things that just were not the case. I think he said that cargo from Europe would be banned. That's not true. He said that there would be a shutdown of travel from Europe. That's not entirely true. And so it speaks to a sort of cavalier attitude toward preparedness in this speech, which is mirrored in the cavalier attitude toward preparedness for the coronavirus more broadly. Can I jump in with a comment on the speech? Because I was really struck by how America's global position might be changed by this. So you had Trump saying all flights from the Schengen area of Europe are now closing for 30 days, not from Britain, but from the rest of Europe. So Italy, for example, already been travel banned, but it's now getting harder and harder for Europeans to get to the United States. Well, this morning, China announced it was sending medical aid to Italy. And the contrast between those two superpowers of how they're responding to a democracy that's in trouble in in southern Europe is pretty striking. I think for Europeans sitting there, their oldest sort of ally across the Atlantic is cutting off flights and saying the rest of the world is to blame for this. And China is sending medical aid. I think that sends, you know, potentially quite a symbolic message that, uh, that could matter in future. It was one of these sort of surreal experiences. To me, it reminded me most clearly of Trump claiming that his inauguration crowd was bigger than Obama's when you're presented with something that is just a blatant denial of fact. COVID is here. People are getting it. This is not something that is going to be limited by cutting off flights from Italy. So it's just sort of this weird denial of an obvious reality that I think both within America and outside it, you look at it with some bewilderment. Do you think that Trump's failure to embrace social distancing could be as consequential as anything else happening in Washington right now? Well, I think that the failure to do social distancing is a crucial part of this. We've seen in Italy that many people were reluctant to stop going to the bars and the beaches, and and that's probably why the virus spread so easily there. Trump here has talked about going to work even if you had the virus. He's called it a hoax. So I don't think the message coming from Trump is at all getting through to people that they need to keep a distance from others, that they need to keep a distance from the elderly especially. But I want to give an example from 1918. We we may have others, but there was a small place in Colorado called Gunnison that just decided to quarantine itself against the world. It's a small mountain town back in 1918. It threw up barricades. It stopped people getting off the train. It arrested people who tried to come into the town it closed itself down for four months completely unilaterally. It just chose to do extreme social distancing. Other places did that too. Princeton did it. TB Hospital in New York did it. An island in San Francisco Bay did it. And to take the example of the place in Colorado, not a single case of the Spanish flu got there. Nobody died. And it became one of these places known as escape communities. And the lesson from 1918 was completely obvious that if you did social distancing, you either didn't get any cases or you bought so much time that by the time you got the cases, they were much less severe or you had the resources to deal with them. So the single most effective message that people should take from this is that if you keep your distance, you slow the spread of the pandemic. And Trump has not been giving that message. The other really interesting example from 1918 was this case of two different cities dealing with parades. So Philadelphia went forward with a, with a huge parade. St. Louis didn't. And you saw a dramatic increase in cases in Philadelphia that never really materialized in St. Louis. And I think that's a reminder of kind of 
the different priorities that officials might have. And there is this instinct to keep things going and not disappoint people in disrupting their way of life, which then in turn leads to much bigger disruption just a few weeks down the road. Absolutely. We saw that in Iran as well two weeks ago, that the Iranians wouldn't cancel religious events. They wanted pilgrimages to carry on. And then Iran has been desperately affected too. So it's, it's happening in other countries as well. It was a failure, I think, of Trump to sort of rally the country behind him, which he could have done and it would have been a political winner for him in the same way that after September 11th, George W. Bush said, we're all in this together. Your way of life may change, but we're going to get through this. I think that Donald Trump could have called for us to do our part, every one of us, and keep our distance and be careful about who we visit. And just we're going to be disrupted for the next month or two, but it's better than the alternative and we will get through this all together. Just to go back to the contrast between Donald Trump and Anthony Fauci, when I was covering healthcare, I interviewed Dr. Fauci several times. And I was always struck as a reporter, you obviously are interviewing people all the time. But he actually stood out in all my years of reporting and interviewing CEOs, politicians, various other officials, as the most skilled person I've met in taking something that's complicated and explaining it clearly. And it's not a surprise why he's held his position for so long and why he's sort of maintained his role as the country's key communicator when it comes to big outbreaks. And so on a personal level, it was just, it's been very interesting in the past month to see the way uh, the White House has elevated other people who perhaps do not have a strong public health record or indeed have undermined past instances of trying to deal with an outbreak as Mike Pence did in Indiana and see the possibility that someone like Dr. Fauci might be marginalized in communications. We'll be back in a moment to dig a bit deeper into how the COVID-19 response is being managed and to talk about testing in particular. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's finish by figuring out what COVID-19 means for politics. Obviously, it's a crucial test for the Trump administration, but it's also a test of how functional the whole system of government is. In the initial phase of a pandemic, testing is key. Idris Kaloun is the U.S. policy correspondent for The Economist. He's been talking to epidemiologists who told him the federal response has been a debacle. America basically had a couple of weeks before the virus moved from China all the way over here, in which it could have done surveillance testing, meaning that they would take a large random sample of people in New York and other big cities and test them for COVID-19. And if they found people who had been infected, then they would isolate them, trace their contacts, and try to keep the disease from spreading widely. What happened in America was that the CDC manufactured a test that had a defective component. It shipped this test, and then a lot of the states that were trying to do them basically found out that they were inconclusive. 
that then had to be repaired. It took uh, several weeks, and then there was also some haggling with the FDA over rules, all of which meant that basically the four or five weeks that America had in which it could have uh, used to its advantage uh, were essentially squandered. Um, even today, uh, American testing capability is far below what it ought to be. So even now, testing is still much slower than it ought to be. You have situations in which doctors are reporting that they need to be tested um, and are not getting tested. You have the governor of New York, the mayor of New York, Chuck Schumer, who's a senator from New York, begging the FDA to let them test more people. It does seem like even now testing is, is a lot slower. One thing that is clear is that we're basically on an upward slope of an exponential curve of some sort. And the decision now is not whether or not it can be stopped, but whether or not we can go into a South Korea-like curve, which has been relatively mild and relatively contained, which lets healthcare professionals adequately meet the demand. Or we could go into something like has happened in Iran and Italy, where it's surged very dramatically and, and seemingly beyond the capacity of local hospitals to keep up. I think that's the situation we're in now. Adam Roberts, we've seen a dramatic reaction from the market this week. And that is sort of what Donald Trump was trying to avoid, right, in downplaying the seriousness of this crisis. How do you see the economics of this playing out and the market reaction of this playing out in the coming weeks? I think you're completely right. I think the reason why Trump has been so anxious not to to, to push the seriousness of this, not to tell people to prepare properly, is because he doesn't want to see a huge economic impact because he worries that as an incumbent, that's his best card to play in the election, that he has presided over great economic strength. Anyone who's been to a Trump rally, I know John's been to loads, has heard Trump talking about how fantastic the stock market is and how it, he's making everyone richer because the stock market has been going up for so many years. Well, it's just gone down by 20%. So if you, if you take that as a measure of the confidence in Donald Trump, you can see that his prospects are plummeting. Everyone is expecting a big economic hit from this. Nobody knows how long or how bad it will be. But this is just not good news for an incumbent president. And you can see that's the reason why, why Donald Trump is worried. If you look at the Democrats, they're proposing big response to this. They, they want a, a big bailout, lots of suggestions of, for example, uh, paid sick leave, absolutely essential. If you want workers to stay home and not spread the disease, they need to have some income coming in. So the, the package that's been proposed by Congress over the last couple of weeks has repeatedly been turned down by the administration. Initially, the administration said it's far too much money. Now it's being taken a bit more seriously. But I think the economic consequences are just coming home to roost, and they'll only get more serious in the, in the coming weeks and months. There are two stages of this. There's the Congress did pass an emergency appropriation of $8.3 this week. So what does that do and what doesn't it do? The 8.3 is just the first round response to how do you get testing kits out there that Idris pointed out haven't been going. So this is money to do your very initial response, to start being able to measure how big the problem is. But this isn't money to really stimulate the economy and to avert the worst of the economic conditions. And maybe John wants to talk about what's being proposed on that. So House Democrats have put forward a sizable bill that includes things like emergency sick days, emergency paid leave, more money for food, free testing, and it also calls on insurance providers to reimburse coronavirus patients for testing. So that all seems fairly sensible and non-controversial to me. Republicans have opposed it. They say it's partisan. I'm not sure exactly why, but it looks like there'll be some back and forth in the next few days. One thing that struck me in terms of the politics of the situation is how similar Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders' responses have been and how different Joe Biden's has been. So 
Donald Trump, who has always been a fan of travel bans, has used the coronavirus to call for another travel ban. And Bernie Sanders, who has always thought that free health care is a good idea, has used the coronavirus to say that free health care is more important now than ever. Joe Biden has been fairly quiet, and he has built up a committee of people who are smarter than he is. Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, Ezekiel Emanuel, a public health expert. And I think if you want to know why confidence in Donald Trump has been shaken and why Bernie Sanders' fortunes have fallen at the expense of Biden's fortunes, that's exactly why people want that sort of reassurance and confidence that the president will be able to contact people who are good and get them on the case. It is interesting, though, the Sanders response and pointing to America's health system, because you do, you know, as a former healthcare writer myself, it is a system that is uniquely unprepared to deal with this kind of crisis. America is extremely good at dealing with acute care, with complex cases. You have people flying from all over the world to come to the Cleveland Clinic for um, to take care of their heart, to come to Memorial Sloan Kettering for cancer treatment. When it comes to broader public health, America has always been bad at it. I mean, with preventative health, the incentives are just not aligned in order to try to keep people healthy. And in this case, it's a pretty disastrous manifestation of that, where there's no reimbursement really for health systems to be really prepared with pandemics. The testing is is its own challenge on a personal level. My husband was taken ill yesterday. He woke up with a high fever and a sore throat. The guidance is essentially, you know, stay home until you have difficulty breathing. And in the meanwhile, our family needs to stay quarantined because we don't know whether he has COVID. So you combine the way that America's health system is set up with the fragmentation of responsibility between federal, state, and city government with a broader public distrust and a broader public lack of will to completely shut down life as it is. And all of these things conspire to have a situation that is quite unsettling. Charlotte, let me ask you, partly out of concern for you and partly out of self-interest, I live just up the river from you. Like you, I have two young children. There's been a case of coronavirus found in my little village, and I think we may be quarantined too. What's it like to be living under quarantine with two kids at home? And what, what do you plan to do? How do you get food? How do you distract the kids? <laughs> um, I'll let you know. Uh, we're about 24 hours in. My husband is in our bedroom alone, and I leave him plates of food just at the entrance to the door, that kind of thing. And, you know, and he may well just have the flu. That's what's so frustrating about it is that it may be that he has something else, but it's very difficult to determine what it is he has. I have already baked a cake this morning with my five-year-old son. My apartment looks like sort of a pack of beasts has run through it. There are toys all over the place. And I expect that we are going to burn off energy with a lot of indoor dance parties. And then who knows? But... um, Mostly, I'm focused on trying to figure out a way to get my husband tested, both for his own safety and for my own mental sanity. It's pretty tricky to know what the next course of action is if you just have no idea whether someone actually has the virus. And in the meantime, we're not letting anyone come to the house. I think there are probably a few million of us who are going to be in that situation in the next few weeks. Now it's time for the quiz. I'm in the great position this week of asking the question rather than being asked the question. The Economist carried ads for a treatment for influenza during the 1918 epidemic. What was it? I'm going to have a guess. I think it's the wonderful beef-based broth called Bovril that advertised itself as being a cure for influenza. 
you are right. Is are they still advertising it as a cure for influenza over a century later? I don't think they're allowed to do that these days. But back then, yeah. the rules were a bit more slack. Oh, okay. <laughs> but how did you, well separately? How did you know? Have you been sort of looking at uh, flu ads from the early teens? Haven't we all? Isn't that how you spend your weekends? <laughs> like I. <did? laughs> In 1919, The Economist reported on the annual Bovril shareholders meeting. A doctor at the meeting, Sir James Crichton Brown, which is the most English name I've ever heard, said Bovril had been, quote, an inestimable boon and comfort to our men in the trenches of World War I, an ever-ready, warm and genial friend in a time of need. Um, we don't have any Bovril. That's not part of my... Uh, pandemic preparedness plan. I'm not sure if that, that should change. No, it's not entirely it's not entirely nonsensical, right? I have a pot of chicken foot soup simmering right now, and like chicken soup has antiviral properties, right? There's no reason Bravo wouldn't. Uh John, I am so envious. I wish that I had someone who really enjoyed cooking who was part of my quarantine situation. <laughs> <laughs> We'll leave it there. Everyone can get back to trying to do as much work as possible um, before we're all confined at home with, with children who need our attention. Thank you both for speaking with me. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, Charlotte. Good luck. Thanks. That's all from us. Please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. And if you haven't got a subscription to The Economist, you should. Economist.com slash pod2020. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. I have to go. Um, can you guys? Sorry, this will be about five hey. minutes. Do you want to wait? Or this is my daughter. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Whoops. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.